Hey, Urban Farm Podcast listeners. If you're as passionate about preserving the bounty of each season as we are, hey, I canned my first peaches at the age of 18, and that was a long time ago, then you're going to love what our friends over at Denali Canning have in store for you. They're on a mission to spread the love and knowledge of food preservation, and they're inviting you to join the journey for free. Right now, Denali Canning is offering free canning lids to anyone who wants to dive deeper into the world of food preservation. Yes, you heard that right, absolutely free. It's the perfect opportunity for both seasoned canners and those curious about starting. Denali is about quality, reliability, and supporting the canning community, ensuring that you get the best results every time you preserve. So why not give it a try? Visit DenaliCanning.com forward slash free to claim your free lids and start your preserving adventures today. That's DenaliCanning.com forward slash free. You're listening to the Urban Farm Podcast, your partner in the grow your own food revolution. Whether you've just been introduced to urban farming or you're a lifelong advocate, we're sure you'll leave feeling more informed, equipped, and empowered to dig deeper into the soil of your local food economy. With you every step of the way, here's your host, Greg Peterson. Today on the Urban Farm Podcast, we have Jennifer Hashley of the New Entry Sustainable Farming Project to talk about her experience with training the next generation of farmers. Jennifer is the director of the New Entry Sustainable Farming Project, a project of Tufts University Friedman School of Nutrition Science and Policy. New Entry is a beginning farmer's training program that assists limited resource individuals to begin small-scale commercial agriculture in Massachusetts as a way to preserve farmland and to expand consumer access to locally grown foods. Jennifer is also a vegetable and livestock farmer. She raises chickens, eggs, pork, beef, rabbit, and specialty vegetables. Jennifer serves on the boards of the Urban Farming Institute of Boston and the Carrot Project, a small farm financing organization. She is a farm business planning instructor for the Massachusetts Department of Agricultural Resources and has organized farm labs and field trips for graduate students in the Tufts University Agriculture Food and Environment Program. Jennifer served as an Agricultural Peace Corps volunteer in Honduras, holds a master's degree in agricultural policy from Tufts University, and a BS in environmental science and public policy from Indiana University. Welcome to the show today, Jennifer. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. So I shared a bit about you. Can you fill in the blanks for us and share more about the path you took to get where you're at now? Well, um, I guess growing up, I was always, I always loved being outside. My family and I always took camping trips and I did a lot of canoeing and camping and hiking and things like that. So I always enjoyed the outdoors. So after college, I wanted to, I got into environmental science and public policy and then quickly realized that the biggest impact that we have on the environment across the globe um, is in agriculture. Mm-hmm. So a lot of working after college at an environmental consulting job, which I was not that thrilled about, you know, getting permits for gold mines and transmission lines through public land. I said, you know, this is a great opportunity to, you know, expand uh, my knowledge of agriculture. And I started taking composting classes and beekeeping workshops and 
vegetable gardening courses. And then I was like, you know, in college, I always wanted to join the Peace Corps. In the biology building, they always had these Peace Corps outreach and recruitment right. uh, tables. And I always thought it would be great. And so I figured, you know, if I'm going to learn more about agriculture, I want to go to a Spanish-speaking country. Because Spanish would be a very good skill to have in, in the field of agriculture. And I wanted to do ag production stuff. So I went to Honduras for a couple of years, um, which is a wonderful experience. I lived in a very rural, remote village um, with a lot of subsistence farmers, and I learned way more from them than I could have ever imagined. A about food security, mm-hmm. and um, you know they're living it, you know, hand to mouth, you know, field to table, basically whatever corn and beans, their staple crops that they could grow. If they had a good harvest, they ate well. They could generate some income for their family and buy other goods. If the harvest was terrible, um, you know, people were malnourished and Mm -hmm. it was just a fact of of life. So that was a huge impression for me. I mean, I grew up in a, you know, in the Midwest surrounded by agriculture, but, you know, I didn't pay much attention to it growing up and just really realized, again, you know, how much, you know, water use and chemical use and just the way that we grow food in this country. So I'd been a vegetarian before I left for the Peace Corps because as I was learning more about agriculture's impact on the environment, Mm -hmm. animals are treated in our industrial factory farming operation. I was like, I want no part of that. Um, And this was from the girl who, anytime my parents came to college to visit, I was like, please take me out for a steak dinner and I'd have, you know, prime rib with horseradish sauce or something. And so for me to not eat meat anymore, my parents thought I was crazy. Um, they thought I was nuts to go off into the Peace Corps, and then when I came back and I said I wanted to be a farmer, they really thought I'd lost it. So. <laughs> I, I, t- so. I, I got to tell you, I hear that from a lot of people. You know, when yeah. <laughs> when younger people look at, hey, I want to be a farmer, you know, their parents kind of look at them sideways and say, what are you thinking? Yeah, and, you know, I just was so amazed at how much, you know, knowledge the farmers I was working with, you know, these were folks that had a first grade education, but... They knew so much about the physical and biological processes that were happening right before their eyes. Mm-hmm. Had practical skills, you know. You know, four-year-old can wield a machete and you know clear a field in two seconds. And I didn't, you know, had to figure out which side that sharp blade was. Yeah. You know, so I, I had a great experience. Um, a lot of really motivated farmers. You know, I worked for a couple of years after college, so I felt like I was able to appreciate um, my role and what I was doing and, and just studied and read books. And I came back to the U.S. and did the UC Santa Cruz apprenticeship program, um, which is a residential, you know, six months living and learning and working on a beautiful organic farm overlooking, you know, the bay. And right. And just learned the fundamentals. And I was like, man, I wish I had done that before I went to Honduras and pretended I was supposed to know something about agriculture. Yeah, exactly. Um, so, but it was a great experience because I was hungry um, to find answers to questions that I wasn't able to answer while I was in Honduras. I got a lot of basic skills. I feel like how they taught us really informed my next role, which was working for, you know, getting this job at, at the New Entry Sustainable Farming Project as a program coordinator. I was responsible for developing all the training and curriculum and helping to get our incubator farms up and running and all the great things that I'm sure we'll talk about soon. But having that fundamental knowledge of um, being taught in a structured way about agriculture mm-hmm. um, and learning how they presented their curriculum and broke down lesson plans and, you know, incorporate that with hands-on training was really valuable um, in my, my career. So Wow. And that program, again, was called? Uh, the UC Santa Cruz Apprenticeship in Ecological Horticulture. And that's a six-month residential program, right? 
Yep. So you live and work on the farm on yep. campus and you take some classes and do field work. And um, we had some nice field trips that were part of the program. It's a pretty intense program. You're, you know, it's, they kind of call it an unintentional, intentional community while you're there. So you're um, really engaged with a group of folks that um, are in your program that year. And I'm friends to many of them. And that's how I met my husband. Oh, <laughs> so nice. Congratulations. It was a, yeah, it was a good, uh, good situation for me. Perfect. So you, you, you used a word that we haven't used a whole lot yet in our podcast shows. And I, I want to unpack it a little bit. Actually, there's a couple of words. Mm-hmm. Food security. Can you kind of unpack that a little bit? Talk more about what it is and why we should be concerned about it. Yeah, food security. I mean, I feel like it is kind of one of these hot button words that we throw around a lot. And I think the challenge in America sometimes is food is all around us in our culture everywhere. I mean, it is in every culture, but I feel like, you know, you can go to a 24-7 grocery store Mm -hmm. and get anything you want from all over the world. And so we don't really realize what it takes to do that and to have that at our fingertips. Um, you know, fast foods everywhere, all this stuff is around us. So it's hard to think about hunger. We think about hunger, but it's kind of this abstract concept unless you're going through it. Unless right. you're, you know, very limited, you have limited resources and are making strategic decisions about what you do with your money. You know, is it buying? McDonald's because you think you're getting you know the best nutrition for your dollar, or are you going to go to the grocery store and buy lentils and pulses? You know, are you working three jobs and don't have time to cook? You know, all those things come into it, and so I think we think very differently about food security in some ways um, than I was referring to it in Honduras, where people are you know living as subsistence farmers, and for them, food security <laughs> is producing their own food. Right family storing it throughout the year, you know, hopefully producing a bumper crop to be able to sell for cash to then be able to fund, you know, shoes for their kids and clothing and education and housing and transportation and all these other things. And so I feel like, you know, we don't, we don't see that directly in our faces as predominantly here in the U S as we, as you might in a very rural remote subsistence farming culture in, in developing countries. Right. But food security is very real here as well. You talk about this other term, food desert, mm-hmm. living in urban areas, and the only thing, you know, only food we can buy is fast food or food at convenience stores, which is largely, you know, sugar-sweetened beverages and snacks and things that are not really considered healthy food. So, yeah, I just, I was really moved by that notion of, gosh, I've never had to think about food security. Right. It's never part of my worldview and all of a sudden I was living it with people and really seeing how much it mattered and I wanted to learn myself how to grow food and I wanted to be food secure myself mm-hmm. so that I didn't have to rely on, you know, if we have a major, you know, we were all worried and when it turned, you know, 2000, oh my gosh, we're going to have this like millennial meltdown and then, you know, we have these fuel crises and if, you know, if our global food supply as we have it now is interrupted, and we have an average of what three days of food on our supermarket shelves exactly at any given time before you know if our transportation system shuts down, you know people are going to be pretty amazed <laughs> at, pretty hungry at how our, they're pretty hungry, and yeah. you know hunger fuels wars more than anything in the world so I, I you know I do everything I can to grow all of my own food, you know I have lots of freezers and you have a generator and I yep. can 
dehydrate things. And to me, that's very important. And so I'm very passionate about what I do at New Entry because we need a future generation of beginning farmers. Yeah. And we need more people on the landscape that know how to grow food. And we need to have it in our communities everywhere, in urban areas, in the suburbs, in rural communities. And not just food that has to be processed, but food that we can eat and consume directly. Right off of the plant. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Fantastic. So the new entry program seems very interesting. And I've, I've often thought about doing something like that here in Phoenix. Tell us about it, please. The origins of new entry were, again, kind of looking at as this aging farmer population, you know, average age is 58.3 and getting older every year, mm -hmm. is retiring who are going to be taking over these farms across the landscape and all the different sectors that, of agriculture. And they're all aging. And so when new entry got started, um, this was back in 1998, I came on board in 2001, um, but the, the founder and director was kind of looking around saying, who is going to be the farmers? And there were a lot of immigrants and refugees. We have a 12% foreign-born population in Massachusetts. Mm -hmm. um, many of the producers from Southeast Asia, Hmong and Cambodian farmers um, were finding their way to um, work on farms. And a woman in, in a central part of the state had, was a dairy farmer. She was also an immigrant from Azores. She had been inviting some of these Hmong farmers onto her land to farm. And so she had this idea, great, well, maybe this is the next generation. What can we do to help um, these immigrants and refugees who are coming to the United States with farm backgrounds to help transition their knowledge to growing in a temperate climate and help them navigate the business and marketing complexities of, of agriculture? And so that's how we really got started. So I was, you know, just back from Peace Corps, just did the Santa Cruz program. I was so excited to, you know, put my cross-cultural experiences to use and I figured you know, and I also wanted to be a farmer so I'm like geez if I can help folks who have limited language limited literacy not a lot of social capital you know you know limited resources help them get started farming then there's got to be hope for me I'm going to have to be able to figure it out <laughs> I'm a trust fund I didn't have the money to buy land and right. you know, start a farm so this seemed like a great opportunity for me to learn um, to help folks um, to help build the program and it was really exciting so we um, had this kind of pool of folks who were great producers and just really needed access to the land and equipment and resources and training to just help them thrive. And mm -hmm. so that's a lot of what we did and still do. So we've built a different series of courses to help outreach and recruit people and make sure that farming is you know, a business enterprise that they want to engage in. So we've right. never been a community garden program. We've never been you know, a hobby farm program. We're very focused on we want to have folks who want to do this as a business, want to sell commercially, want to produce food for the community. So we have a farm business planning course, and we take people through um, the whole concept of sort of what you need to think about to get started for your first year in agriculture. So we have people develop, you know, do market research and develop a marketing plan, uh, crop production plan or livestock production plan, whatever their goals are, and then develop, you know, financial statements and cash flows and a startup budget and a risk management plan and now food safety plan and put it all together and put all their thoughts on paper. Mm -hmm. and that's a way for, for us to make sure that someone's really serious about taking this next step. Right. And that's kind of a, a requirement for, for most folks to participate in a lot of the other programs that we've offered and developed. 
I should go back also and say that um, our primary audience has been immigrants and refugees up until about 2007. Uh-huh. And at that, that point in time, as the local food movement was really growing, um, people were kind of knocking on our door saying, gosh, you have this great business planning course, you have these incubator farms, you're helping people get to market, you know, we want to learn too, we don't see how else we're going to get this help. And so we did a big strategic planning process and asked a lot of our existing farmers and partners and funders and community members whether, you know, opening up our programs to all beginning farmers made sense. And everybody's like, sure, why not? We need more farmers. So now we serve a very diverse group of, of folks, um, immigrants, refugees, retirees, career changers, unemployed veterans, mm-hmm. um, you, name, you name it, yeah. um, the whole gamut. And so I say that at this point because we used to just sort of have our business planning course. We've always had our incubator farm program. And that's for folks who don't know what an incubator farm is. It's really kind of what it sounds like, you know, we've got this space, there's a lot of tools and equipment, greenhouses, sheds, you know, some access to tractors and rototillers and a cooler and wash stations, but it's a safe space for someone to come um, try out their farm business for a few years, you know, make mistakes, learn, fail, grow, build their market base, get the experience, get a lot of mentoring and training, and then we launch them onto their own farm so they can stay on our incubator farm for three years. Wow, and then cool. we help them move on. Yeah, so they take the business planning course. They can choose to farm on the incubator or not if they have their own land. More power to them. That's great. Right. Um, and then we do a lot of hands-on practical skills trainings on the incubator farm. So we do about 12 workshops a year. They're open to the public. And then after the three-year period, they have to move on. So we have a, a farmland matching program within our organization. Oh, nice. Really yeah, because it's really tough once people, you know, really build their market base close to Boston and, you know, these suburban and peri-urban communities, they want to stay and they, you know, servicing those communities. And so it's really tough to find land when, you know, if the land trust land is not available or, you know, preserved land is already being farmed by other farmers. Mm-hmm. So we do a pretty specialized deep dive into our land matching service where we have different activities we do in communities. We might do a targeted GIS analysis where we can use a lot of publicly available data to do you know, soil, you know, do a soil scan and look at, you know, wetlands and tree cover and um, slope and all that kind of stuff and find parcels of two acres or more that meet good agricultural criteria. We can overlay assessor's data on that and figure out who owns the parcel. We can do mailings, invite people to come to a public forum where we're talking about land access issues. Wow. And try to really unearth some of these parcels that are in people's backyards. Right. You know, we go for the low-hanging fruit first, all the publicly available stuff, but if there's nothing that's available for lease, then we start diving deeper into some of these communities. And we made a bunch of successful matches that way. Because oftentimes people really just want a couple of acres. You know, they're not looking. You know, we can't do it year round very easily in Massachusetts. And, you know, so they're just kind of looking to do vegetable production seasonally and part time or, you know, a supplemental income, but still sell commercially. And that works as, you know, to get started. And then, you know, when people are more serious, they tend to have to buy land elsewhere. But so that's been a successful project for us. It's really um, intensive work, a lot of one on one a lot of pipeline development for both the land itself and then really trying to help farmers be clear on their goals and you know look at a lot of different parcels that are available out there and make make a match with a hopefully good long-term secure lease. Right. That, and, that's, and then build, build, build infrastructure, yeah. That seems to be the biggest challenge or one of the bigger challenges is locating land, especially in urban areas, right? 
Oh, absolutely. Yep, that's that's a big, huge barrier, huge hurdle. And I would like to say, you know, land is not a land is land. Land is not a farm. Mm-hmm. You know, a, a farm needs infrastructure. It needs irrigation. It may need a hoop house. It may need you know good quality soil and soil fertility being built up into it. It may need other types of infrastructure. And so a lot of times people will be like, oh yeah, I've got some land. And it's like, okay, well, 35000 <laughs> $50,000, $100,000 later, we can make it into a farm. Right. Um, so yeah, we do need that securely because, you know, land takes a lot more than, than just the soil to, to grow stuff. Right. So a couple of more deep dive questions in this. Who, who, who are you getting to do this? Like what, are, what kinds of people are you getting to show up that want to do this? Is it, is it like all millennials or are there, you know, people from all ages and all backgrounds? You already mentioned the immigrants. So can you tell us a little bit more about the, the people that are in, you're engaging? Yeah, you know, it's weird. We're, we're not really getting a lot of millennials in the program. You know, young people right out of college who don't have a lot of family commitments or, you know, maybe they have a lot of student debt, but they're mm-hmm. otherwise relatively unencumbered. They are tending to do more on-farm learning through a farm apprenticeship, mm-hmm. um, which is a great way to get practical experience and learn. Um, we tend to, we, because we've always built our program around working um, with working adults, you know, immigrants and refugees who we were originally targeting our programs to, you know, they had families, they had houses and mortgages or rent, you know, and we're sending money back home. So they needed to keep another job and they were adults. So they weren't going to just give up, you know, their third shift or first shift or whatever work they had and, you know, go work on someone else's farm for 300 bucks a month and live in the barn and mm-hmm. work to get that experience because they already knew how to farm anyway. So we've always kind of attracted folks who I would say were a little more kind of stable and had a family or had a home and were kind of going to be in the area for a while. They weren't just sort of out of college trying to assess what they were doing. So I would say our average demographic is, you know, late 20s to 60s. Interesting. (laughs) Yeah, it's pretty interesting. I think we do have some young people. I don't want to say we don't. Um, We tend to have more folks who are career changers, second career, mm, um, getting ready mm-hmm. to retire. And, you know, that's really not helping our average age of the farmer demographic, but um, but that's just what the reality of what we're seeing. Right. Um, it's engaging them in the conversation. Yeah. Yep. And they're farming. They're out there doing the work. So, Yay. You know. Fantastic. They're learning how to use their bodies efficiently and ergonomically. Yep. <laughs> so. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So what are they raising we do work with both livestock and vegetable producers. So for the veggie folks, um, it's all specialty crops, which, you know, one's raising commodity corn and soy because they're on small acreage and we're close to urban areas. You know, people are direct marketing. And I failed to mention earlier, one of our other big programs is our World Peas Food Hub, um, which is a great marketing outlet for folks. So they sell a lot of um, specialty vegetables to us as part of our food hub. Oh, nice. We can talk about it in a minute. And, um, you know, that's everything from specialty greens and lettuces and onions and tomatoes and cucumbers and peppers and carrots and squashes and all kinds of really neat stuff. Some of our farmers really try to differentiate what they're doing by growing really unique varieties, um, Mm -hmm. heirloom varieties, you know, miniature vegetables, you know, high-end greens and salad mixes and specialty blends and things like that. So, And then, of course, our immigrant and refugee farmers have really amazing ethnic crops and things that you wouldn't even think would be able to grow oh, right. in Massachusetts. You know, mm-hmm. we've got lemongrass and lufa gourd and bitter melon and 
you know, Japanese eggplants and different kinds of herbs and greens and all kinds of really wonderful stuff. So it's a, it's a really nice mix. Um, we also work with livestock producers. So people are, you know, raising eggs and meat chickens and turkeys and pigs and grass fed beef and, you know, the whole gamut of, of livestock. So. so pretty much you're touching on really anything that people eat. Yes, absolutely. Yep. Fantastic. Any chicken farmers? One of my favorites. Yep, chicken farmers. Um, one of the other programs that New Entry runs is uh, we own a mobile poultry processing unit. Oh, wow. So, <laughs> that was a, a really amazing project that tested my fortitude in, in numerous ways. Um, so I myself, as I said, um, wanted to be a farmer. So when my husband and I moved to the area and, you know, he ended up working, I got my wonderful job at New Entry and he ended up at a vegetable farm outside of Boston. So we lived there and had this chicken coop in the backyard and started raising chickens. And so, you know, at the same time we started doing more livestock programming at New Entry, we we're all kind of coming to the same place where, you know, you start with the egg layers and you sell eggs and mm-hmm. that's really and you're like, oh, chickens are kind of fun. Let's do some meat birds. Right. And yeah, you, can't, you can't buy a local chicken anywhere because 99.9% of our chickens come from you know, large factory farm barns and they're very, you know, raised very efficiently, vertically integrated and very inexpensive. Mm-hmm. So this, you know, this egg laying business is kind of fun. Chickens are kind of cool. I was a vegetarian. Let's, you know, raise some meat birds. And lo and behold, there's nowhere to get them processed. Right. Unless you're doing them yourself. Barns are, right. Exactly. So what I had to do, and I was fortunate as a producer to be able to wear my new entry nonprofit farm service provider hat um, was to really, you know, spend my working hours you know, kind of being like, wow, if we're going to be training livestock farmers about raising poultry, which is kind of this, you know, early stage gateway enterprise to livestock production, you can raise meat birds and in eight weeks get, you know, all your money back for them. It's a pretty quick turnaround, a great way to, to kind of build your other livestock infrastructure. Mm-hmm. Well, if I can't get my birds processed and no other producer can get their birds processed, what are we going to do? So we approached, there's another organization in the western part of the state that was also just starting to work on this issue. And so I partnered with them and they were building this kind of prototype mobile poultry processing unit. And so they've been having different conversations with different state regulatory agencies. And so I said, well, great. I want in on this conversation too. Let's do some field trials. Let's invite all the regulators out. We'll use my birds as the guinea pigs. Not the guinea pigs, but the chickens. <laughs> and, um, you know, we'll do some testing and try to, like, surface what all these regulatory questions are. And so I got right. some fun. We wrote this grant, and, you know, we were able to do some of these field days and, you know, really convene some meaningful conversations between these three regulatory agencies who had never sat down and talked to each other before which is shocking to me. So it was a great, you know, use of my public policy degree and diplomacy and all that stuff. So we ended up having a three or four year pilot project out of it and were able to develop a protocol between the three state agencies so that everybody was comfortable with the checks and balances that were going on and trained a lot of producers. And then we only had one unit. And so I was like, well, that's not sufficient to have one unit traveling to every single corner of the state. And the unit that the prototype unit we were using was an open air unit. So we were having people who wanted to do turkeys and Thanksgiving. It was too cold. The water lines were freezing. And, you know, it was a prototype. So we wanted to build the next bigger and better model. So Mm -hmm. we had some funding from um, USDA's rural development program. And we're able to build an enclosed unit that can be used, um, you know, different parts of the season, extend the season. And we upgraded some of the equipment so it could handle turkeys and, 
Yeah, that was that was I would say one of my bigger successes. Wow. Um, out there is getting that process approved, um, getting the state to talk, you know the state agencies to talk to each other, and now there's a legal way that you can you know get a license and legally process and sell your birds in Massachusetts, and that's really paved the way for a lot of on-farm facilities to be able to be constructed as, again, as the local food movement has expanded, more people want to do this. And if, you know, renting a mobile unit isn't really feasible, then um, we've had a lot of farms also build their own on-farm processing plants. And because they allowed this open-air model, it's like, oh, you can't say no to doing an on-farm facility. And it's, you know, I don't want to say it's not as rigorous as it was before, but um, I think it, it definitely helped educate the regulators about what they could allow that I think they would have just strictly gone by you know, the book before um, in, a, in a different way. So that's great. So you mentioned a term here a moment ago that I want to unpack a little bit, and that's called food hub. And it's mm-hmm. it, it kind of you address it in the conversation we just had about this uh, mobile poultry processing center. That's kind of food hub like ish, isn't it? Well, a food hub, yeah, kind of like you think about a hub and a spoke on a bicycle wheel. So we have a food hub, and we call it the World Peace Food Hub for People Enhancing Agricultural Sustainability. Mm-hmm. That's our nice name. Um, and it's basically we built that as a way to you know, guarantee a market outlet for farmers that were learning to grow. Mm-hmm. Um, not everybody is, you know, is is already equipped to just, you know, start their first year with a wholesale contract that you have 50 cases of eggplant every week going to the terminal market or something like that. It's not really practical. Right. Um, and we did, we did wanted farmers to be able to do a crop plan, you know, do succession planting and be able to deliver on time with high quality in the amounts and commitment that they agreed to up front so that they could be ready to do that with any buyer that they would approach later on in their career. So mm-hmm. um, our goal for the Food Hub was to... Buy, you know, build a better market for farmers, give them a living wage price, and help train them to grow for market contracts. So the hub and the spoke analogy is, you know, we're the we as the organization, the nonprofit, are doing the marketing and distribution and aggregation of the multiple spokes of our farmers, whether they're on our incubator site or if they're graduating um, from our incubator and they're off on their own land. Got it. You know, they're bringing products to us in a central location um, June through October, and then we're taking care of the distribution and, and marketing. Perfect. That's the hub so we have part. A, yeah, that's the hub part. Oh, and nice. so we have a you know, cooler and refrigerated trucks and a warehouse. We get volunteers to come and pack shares. So we mm-hmm. have a CSP program. We support an agriculture program. We do a lot of low-income food access programming. So we raise philanthropic dollars and, and try to get funding to subsidize what we want to, you know, continue to pay the farmers a living wage, but also get food into the hands of folks who might not be able to afford fresh fruits and vegetables and work with a lot of, you know, homeless shelters and food banks and senior elder senior centers and, right. um, you know, nutrition, nice. community health places, all that good stuff. So where can we get more information about the new entry program? You can go to our website, which is www. N-E-S-S-P for New Entry Sustainable Farming Project.org. Perfect. Cool. So I'm going to shift a little bit on, on you now, and I want to talk about a time you failed, how you ever overcame that failure, and what did you learn from it? Well, <laughs> I know I was thinking about this a little bit, and, you know, it's hard to pick just one failure. Um, <laughs> yeah, I mean, I feel like, I don't, I don't know where I feel like I've, 
failed miserably. Um, I feel like there's, I guess in my life, I feel like there's lots of, of little failures mm-hmm. that happen all the time that we're always learning from, whether, you know, it's a grant or a funding opportunity that I was really looking forward to. And somehow I, you know, just didn't quite hit the mark on what the funder was looking for. And right. just, you know, didn't get the money and couldn't do this program that we were all really looking for. I mean, I feel like that's the most, like in my role right now as the director of this organization responsible for raising all of our, our budget every year and keeping our staff engaged and employed and keep doing the wonderful work we do. Mm-hmm. I feel like those are my, my biggest failures are when, you know, I feel like I did the very best job I could and, you know, wrote a really amazing proposal. And yet there was like some simple thing that, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. got screwed up somehow, yeah. or, you know, they were, look, they were looking for something that I would never would have known. And, you know, then you just end up just feeling like, Oh man, I blew it. And I blew this opportunity to do this really cool program. Right. Um, you know, and then there's just been other things I feel like on a, you know, either more personal nature or relationships where, you know, I am a very trusting person. And so as an organization, you know, I feel like I've gone down these roads, um, building these partnerships or a few different projects. And all of a sudden, you know, each of the different organizations has very different expectations <laughs> or we were on like some totally different yeah. communication plane where it's like, whoa, where, like, how did you end up over here? And I'm over here. And then the relationship has failed. And so I just, I feel like those are my biggest failures in relationships or losing good staff for different reasons, you know, that I can't pay them enough to do this work mm. um, in the way that they deserve to be paid. Yeah. Um, Always a challenge. Really hard. Yep. Yeah. So I guess I don't feel like there's been this one big looming thing where I just like fell flat on my face and, you know, did something horrendous. I feel like there's just been lots of things that, haven't gone as well as I had hoped that I've learned a lot from like from now on, you know, entering and into any agreement, no matter how like cordial and collaborative and communicative it starts out. I'm going to put everything in writing about our agreement or our work, mutual work plan and collaboration on paper upfront, you know, and whether that's a lease agreement, like I just lost, you know, my husband and I just lost the lease on this property we've been at for 12 years, came out of the blue you know, that was the whole last year was a horrible experience for mm, our entire livestock farm. Yeah. So it's like, you know, between, you know, professional relationships going south without, with, you know, misaligned expectations because they weren't writing and, you know, not having my own lease in writing, even though I knew better, those kinds of things, I feel like, okay, those are big life lessons. Mm-hmm. You know? Be clear, write it down. <laughs> Perfect. And, uh, you know, working harder to continue to increase the financial reward for them doing this work so yeah. that you can keep and retain really good people. Great. And what do you consider your biggest, biggest success? I guess I'm really proud of the fact that, um, for better or for worse, um, <laughs> you know, I, I'll explain that in a minute, but, um, I feel like we've, I really helped build the, one of the more comprehensive beginning farmer training programs that I know of out there. You know, it, it's been this organic process that I've had a, privilege of being part of all along, um, where we started out with, you know, this concept and we've just been evolving it and just trying to figure out the best way to help beginning farmers through this life cycle of, mm-hmm. of learning and growing and marketing and, you know, consumer education and the whole nine yards. So I feel like we've built something where someone can walk in our door with just an idea. They can 
formalize their thoughts into a business plan. They can get on the land and get started. They have a market. They can get land access. We can help them connect to capital. We can support them with technical assistance the whole way. And then hopefully, if all the stars align, they'll go off and they'll continue to grow food for their community in perpetuity. So Mm -hmm. I feel like there's a lot of other organizations who do certain components of that, but we've really tried to, um, like I said, for better or for worse, bring it all in house yeah. and be a comprehensive support for folks. Perfect. And you know, that's unique. And I, I love that we do that. Nice. And so two cents from the peanut gallery here, um, with all of the people that I've interviewed and talked to, I agree with you. This is the most comprehensive one I have seen. And I'm, I am in awe of what you've done. So thank you for doing that. This is truly a cool thing. Thank you. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. So what drives you? What drives me is, I think, um, you know, food is such a fundamental thing to all of us, whether mm-hmm. we pay attention to what we put in our mouth or not. And there's so much of our culture and community that is shared over food and meals and drink and, you know, just every family and social gathering revolves around food. And, you know, I really care about where that food comes from, how it was grown, how it impacts the land and our health and our water, you know, all of that stuff to me is like so important. And so, uh, you know, I'm just so passionate about eating good food and sharing meals with family and community that I want everybody to be proud of the food that they're serving <laughs> their, their family every day and that they appreciate and know who grew it. And I think yeah. so many people are, I mean, that's what drives me to have my farm and like, I just want to keep making sure that, that we have choice out there. Yeah. We don't have, you know, what comes to us in the supermarket is, <laughs> by forces, you know, we can get into another discussion, but, you know, if you want to choose what you put in your body and know how it's raised, get to know your farmer, and you can't do that if your farmer doesn't live, you know, you can't Close. access that. Yeah. You don't have them in your community, so. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Fantastic. I so, like to eat. That's what drives me. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm all about education. I have to know what one book has been most influential for you in your life in this process. Well, that's a very tough question because I read a lot and I love lots of books. Can I say a few? Sure. <laughs> it's really hard to narrow it down. So I, I said um, Giants in the Earth by E.O. Rollbog um, was a good one that I read in college. Um, it's about these immigrant uh, folks who come and they're, I love these kind of historical you know, settling the, the plains and, and starting these farms and, you know, all this kind of stuff out there in, on the Great Plains somehow. Uh-huh. That was a good one. Um, I was also thinking as we were talking, what, one of the books I read that really did shift my understanding of things um, when I was in the Peace Corps was Unsettling of America by, by Wendell Berry. And that book, I was like, whoa, you know, that really opened and blew my mind as well. And Small is Beautiful by E.F. Schumacher. Oh, yes. So, those are my faves. Um, I would say those all have had huge influence, you know, and then of course, you know, there's all the, the ones that have been more popular as well, but, um, and reading Joel Salatin's books, I love those cause they're just a riot. Oh yes, exactly. As a livestock farmer, you know, he's the guru. So yep, that is the case. Yeah, that is the case. Cool. So what final piece of advice do you have for our listeners? Eat well, pay more for your food, get to know your farmers. Uh, get involved in your community, pay attention to the farm bill, vote, enjoy life. Nice. Nice, (laughs) nice, nice, nice. Thank you. And thank you so much for joining us on the show today, Jennifer. It's been a treat chatting with you. How can our listeners get a hold of you? 
Uh, people can find us on the new entry website, like I said, um, www.nesfp.org. You can email me directly at jennifer.hashley at tufts.edu. Um, yeah. Perfect. Look forward to hearing from folks. Perfect. Thank you. This has been an awesome conversation. Great. Thank you. I appreciate it. And, and good luck with the show. Thank you. So that's it for today. Thanks for joining us on the Urban Farm Podcast. We hope you enjoyed today's episode of the Urban Farm Podcast. Remember to listen three days a week for tips, advice, and resources to help you on your journey with urban farming. You can find us on the web at urbanfarm.org or send us an email to podcast at urbanfarm.org. In the words of Vincent Van Gogh, great things are done by a series of small things brought together. Be encouraged that with each lesson learned and skill developed, you are one step closer in the direction of your dreams. Hey, Urban Farm Podcast listeners. If you're as passionate about preserving the bounty of each season as we are, hey, I canned my first peaches at the age of 18, and that was a long time ago, then you're going to love what our friends over at Denali Canning have in store for you. They're on a mission to spread the love and knowledge of food preservation, and they're inviting you to join the journey for free. Right now, Denali Canning is offering free canning lids to anyone who wants to dive deeper into the world of food preservation. Yes, you heard that right, absolutely free. It's the perfect opportunity for both seasoned canners and those curious about starting. Denali is about quality, reliability, and supporting the canning community, ensuring that you get the best results every time you preserve. So why not give it a try? Visit DenaliCanning.com forward slash free to claim your free lids and start your preserving adventures today. That's DenaliCanning.com forward slash free.